You're listening to Calvary Spokane's teaching series through the book of Genesis. Uh, Good evening and welcome. Glad you're here. Glad to be here. Um, Just want to mention real quick for those who'd be interested and maybe more those who are following online or YouTube. um, I'm going to be doing a a marriage conference in Sandpoint at, at Grace Sandpoint, my son's church on the 24th of March, which is a Saturday, so at, at 10 a.m. in the morning. So I'm going to be there, and so I hope somebody else comes. But uh, just for those of you who might be interested in knowing about it. But tonight, as Eric said, we're going to continue through our Sin and Redemption series. We're talking about covenants, and I want to begin by reading in chapter 8. So if you don't mind turning there, we're going to start reading as we continue picking up in verse 20. Genesis chapter 8, beginning in verse 20. And if you don't mind, would you stand with me as we read this passage together? The text reads as follows. It says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and said, And taking some of of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. And the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man. Even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood, and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease except for global war. Oh, no, excuse me. Um, (laughs) Chapter 9, verse 1, then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall upon all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air, upon every creature that moves along the ground, and upon all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hands, and everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And for you, lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal, and from each man, too, I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall have his blood shed. For in the image of God, God made man. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number and multiply in the earth and increase upon it. And then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all of those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth, I will establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cast off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant. I am making between me and you and every living creature with you a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbows appear in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. And whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. And so God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant 
I have established between me and all life on earth. Let's begin the prayer. Father, I ask as we reflect on these passages that we've just read this evening that your Holy Spirit would give us a, an understanding not only of the message that's fairly clear and obvious here, but Lord, we would understand the deeper implications to our lives. Father, we, we struggle because we don't want to be people who hear things but don't give them application to our lives. We confess that we're all vulnerable to that, that we can be impressed by our own understanding and yet really in truth not understand anything that really matters. So God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would, be, would search our hearts and our thoughts and you'd speak to us through your word tonight in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> After about 370 days on the ark, Noah and his family and all of the animals disembarked and stood for the first time in that long period on dry ground. The event that modern science would look back on and call genetically the genetic or mitochondrial bottleneck came to an end and the earth began to rapidly repopulate with both man and animal. Notably, the first thing that Noah did was to build an altar. And it would have been an altar probably very close to the specifications that we read later on in the uh, book of Leviticus, that it was to be not something crafted by hand, but rather something that was just built of rocks or a mound of earth. Because God said you'd, He didn't want any tool to be used to make an altar or any steps rising up to it as if by the act of sacrifice we were raising ourselves up to the presence of God. Because even in the ancient Paleo-Hebrew language, the idea of an altar meant to be to rise up or the idea that you're rising up to the presence of God. Later on in chapter 11, we'll read about the Tower of Babel, and that essentially was the concept that they were operating under. Somehow we can ascend into the very presence of God. But the irony of that is that sacrifice is supposed to be speaking to just the opposite dynamic. The fact that man cannot reach God, that there is a, a barrier of sin that sits between us and the heavens. But this is the first time that the word altar appears in the Bible. We'll also see it's the first time two other words appear that we'll look into in a few moments. The first time we see the word sacrifice, and then also the first time we see the word covenant. And all of these are critically important descriptive terms of the nature of our relationship with God. And unfortunately, like so many terms that enter into our vocabulary, we can speak them so often and frequently and oftentimes without really any kind of depth of definition that they just become sounds that are religious in their tone, but we miss the deeper message that was meant by their usage in the very beginning. And that certainly is true of these three words. But see, following Adam and Eve's initial sin, uh, we know that God executed some animals. In fact, we read in chapter 321 that the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife Eve and clothed them. So that in order to get those garments of skin, they had to be removed from the bodies of animals that had to be killed in one way or another. We're not given the detail. But I think that that probably 
indicates that that may have been the first occasion in which any altar was built. On my part, it's purely speculative to speak with regards to these things, but the point is that it's very possible the very model of building an altar and offering animals and sacrifice was initiated by that first moment when God used it as a covering Because the concept of the sacrifice was this atonement or this making uh, atonement for the sins of mankind, that God was putting an external covering over Adam and Eve to hide the shame of their nakedness, but not missing the point that the reason they felt that shame of nakedness was because of the sin that was within, not the nakedness that was without. But this became an objectified way in which God could portray the greater need that was in their life when sin entered into human history. It's probably in imitation of this very thing that we find that Adam and his descendants after him also engaged in blood sacrifices so that we later on read in chapter 4 and in verse 4 how that Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock, and the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. Now, the word offering there, the original term in, in the Hebrew means a gift, that he looked at the gift that was being given. And there's a distinction that we need to make between an offering and a sacrifice, Because in chapter 8, we find, as I said, for the first time, this word sacrifice is used as opposed to chapter 4 where he uses offering. And the difference between the two is that an offering is a way of saying thank you to God for stuff. An offering is thanking God for stuff. In other words, when we make a tithe to the Lord, that's an offering. We're saying, God, you have blessed me, and so I'm going to give you a 10% back as a recognition that you are the provider of the 100%, and also doing it in faith, believing that God can make my 90% go further than my 100% could go if I kept it to myself. But it's really an offering is an idea of I'm giving back to God an offering of stuff in recognition and saying, thank you for the stuff that you give me, for the food on my table, the, the money in my bank account, the fuel in my vehicle, and so forth. I'm saying, God, thank you for that provision. And so it was with Abel and Cain and, and Adam and Eve and the rest of their family members, extended family members. They brought offerings to say, thank you, God, because even though you have cursed the earth and said we will draw from it our living by our toil and soil, yet the reality is we are sustained by the increase that you give from our efforts. But a sacrifice is saying something significantly different and deeper. It's saying, thank you for my very life, because sacrifice involves the taking of a life as an atonement for sin, or as the writer of Hebrews would later say in Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So the very principle of sacrifice as it's basically uh, codified under the Mosaic law in Leviticus was that you're offering an animal and shedding its blood and pouring it out. Its life is being taken as a, as a re, a, in place of your own life. Its life is being given in place of your life. Not in the true sense, or I should say in the complete sense, but nonetheless in a figurative way. So that as Cain and Abel worked the cursed soil with sweat and toil, they recognized they needed to thank God for the essentials that God was giving them. But when Noah disembarks from the ark, he is not just saying, thank you for a safe trip. He is saying, 
Thank you for the grace that has kept us from perishing and has saved our very life and the rest of humanity. Thank you for our very life. And that's the difference between a sacrifice and an offering. You see, in all of that, Noah was very aware of what I would simply call the otherness of God, which may be a, a phrase that may not have immediate significance to you, but we live in an age which talks a lot about the God within, as if somehow God is somewhere between some of the DNA uh, chromosomes in your body, and you just have to find that God gene inside of you. But it's this otherness of God that we are not God, but God is beyond us and outside of us and above us and over us, that he understood this otherness of God and as a result, his utter dependence upon him for his life and everything that was of his life. And what this bred in him was the thankfulness of salvation. The salvation not only of his own life, but of his family's and of, of the earth and the home of the planet that God had placed him on. He's thankful to God for these things. It was something that uh, wasn't something that he just experienced, but it was something that was for them, but was not created by them. It's something that God did for them, but and did not come of them in their own selves. I mean, we can say, yes, Noah built the boat. But it was God who showed him how and what and when and where. It was God who gave him the strength and the energy, the wherewithal to complete it even on time. It was God who enabled them to survive 150 days on the raging oceans so that they might land safely on the mountains of Ararat. And it is this attitude of thankfulness, this attitude of gratitude that lies at the heart of any true relationship with God. That's why knowing God cannot happen as long as we are proud of what we have done or who we are. It comes rather out of that humility of realizing that God has done for me what I am wholly incapable of doing for myself, and that creates a thankfulness. This thankfulness I refer to as an essential awareness for the spiritual man or woman. It's what the psalmist was speaking of in Psalm 100 when he says, know that the Lord is God. It is He who made us and we are His. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. Now, I know sheep are charming, but calling someone a sheep is not a compliment. And I don't mean it just in the sense that they seem to follow whoever the leader is, but they're really stupid. They are not smart. They are not the most intelligent animal on the planet. And he says, but the point is that we recognize that there is such an intellectual gulf between the shepherd and the sheep that when he says, I am the sheep of your pasture and you are the shepherd, I recognize there is such a massive gulf between me and you and my understanding and my knowledge of what's going on, that the only wise thing for a sheep to do is depend upon the shepherd. So that when Jesus 20 times in the gospel says, follow me, follow me, it's the, the most repeated, oft-repeated and, and most persistent commandment of all of the gospels, follow me. It's in the context that he is a shepherd and we are the sheep 
And it's only in that dependent relationship that we can ever hope to successfully find ourselves wherever God wants us to be. But as Gail Irwin used to so comically express it, somehow we don't like the idea of being Lambo, so we want to be Rambo. You know, it's like this idea that somehow we can master the issues and the challenges of life through our own superior intellect and ability. And so many of us wonder, why is it God, that God allows us to go through many, so many breaking and crushing experiences in our life? And the truth of the matter is, it brings us to the end of ourselves. Why is it, he tells Isaiah, I take the ashes of your life and I make them into a thing of beauty? I'll confess to you, I don't want to go through that manufacturing process. You know, I want to go from beauty to beauty, or beauty to more beautiful. But I don't want to go from beauty to ashes to whatever that's going to look like when he gets done. You know, a little piece of pottery on the coffee table or whatever it is that he destined my life to be. But the simple fact is that God takes that, those things and crafts them into something that's beautiful. And most of us have this concept that, you know, if I'm walking with God and I'm serving him, then it's evident by the outward blessing that is on my life. And to some degree, that's true. To some degree, you can look at your life and say, I have so much more than I ever deserved. I, I enjoy so many more things than, than a person like me should ever have. And I can compare myself to other people on the planet who have so much less. And if, if for no other reason from a human perspective, it's just the luck of geography that makes me different from them. But at the end of the day, when I come to this realization that I am what I am because of God's destiny for my life, it wasn't because of some great accomplishment or ability to overcome. It is He who made us, and it is also He who sustains us. And it's the importance of this awareness that is evidenced by the fact that He repeatedly would say to Israel, both when they did something good and more often when they did something bad, He says, I'm going to do this so then you will know that I am the Lord your God. When you see blessings and rewards coming to you that you didn't deserve, you're living in cities and, and, and enjoying things in your life, farming fields that you didn't plant and harvesting from orchards you didn't, you didn't tend, you'll look at me and say, this is evidence to me that you are the Lord God because you gave me these things. But oftentimes men forget when those blessings come, and so it's only through the lessons of adversity that we truly begin to realize that He is also the Lord in those circumstances as well. As I say to this, I realize that I'm kind of expressing a theological perspective that is really antithetical to the culture in which you and I live today. Because we are part of a period in human history where the idea of Americanism is that every day and every way we're getting better and better and better. Every generation expects to have a higher standard of living and to be further along down the road than those who are before them. And this is kind of our inherited right, our destiny from God. And the evidence that we are God's beloved is because we have the mightiest army, the richest economy, and we drive the nicest cars, live in the most houses that other people ever lived in the history of the world. And there's a self-congratulatory state that we get into, and I'm not suggesting that it's wrong that we have those things. I'm just saying it's not relevant. It really is not a factor in whether God loves you or not. But it just occurred to me a few weeks ago as 
that some of the most wealthy and powerful and influential and important men and women that have ever lived the history of the world are waiting in hell right now. And some of the most forgotten and unknown and destitute people that have ever lived are in the right hand of God in glory. And it's important for us to recognize that this external experiment that we have in this world is not the thing that defines what we are, and yet we want to go there so that <clears throat> we're driving across country and suddenly the engine blows up in your car and you're stuck in the middle of nowhere between nothing and never, and you sit there and say, God, why would you allow this to happen to me? And it's almost as if I, I think if God were a jokester, He'd just say, why not you? Because that doesn't define the reality of who I am or who you are. But I'm the same God yesterday, today, and forever. I'm the same God in wealth and in prosperity, in health and sickness, because then I can also be the same God in life as I am in death, that I don't change. I'm the same forever. It's also this issue of thankfulness is also so key because Paul tells us that many times mankind does suffer judgment and cataclysmic things in their life because they have forgotten the fact that they need to be grateful, they need to be thankful. When Paul opens his letter to the Romans and he says to them in verse 21, he says, although they knew God, speaking of the, the, the heathen, the non-Christian world, even though they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. It's kind of a very similar to the time that you and I live in today. Studies and surveys that have been done in America find that everybody almost believes in God. Practically no one is actually an atheist. Even atheists aren't really atheistic. They know God. They, they find this an undeniable reality. There's no harder position to defend philosophically and logically than atheism. How do you argue against something that doesn't exist? It must exist or we wouldn't have the conversation. <laughs> I mean, it just, it's just kind of a, a logical necessity. But he says, although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And he goes on to say, therefore God gave them over. He just released them, he said, to their sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Further on, he says, he again gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. And since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he goes on to say, he again gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. That simply says, God, when you, God says, when you become unthankful, he doesn't say, I therefore impoverish you. In fact, what he says is, I'll just give you over to whatever it is you want. I'll just let you follow the trail that you want to blaze for yourself. And this is the most frightening thing for me as a follower of God. God, never let me be so stubborn and so self-willed that you'll just finally say, the only way you're ever going to learn is for me just to let you have your way. Because that's a sign of having been rejected by God. 
That's why later on the writer of Hebrews said, how do we know that we're loved by God? Because he says a loving father, even in the natural sense, will chasten and discipline his children. A father or mother who just allows their kid to do whatever they want doesn't love their kids because they know enough to say their own destiny is going to be destruction. So that when you want to talk about how do I know if God is in my life? It isn't because I suddenly have been allowed to pursue whatever agenda or career I want. We have this kind of celebrity-like culture mindset that looks at people and says, because they've got a reality TV show, there must be something special about them because they sprinkle a little bit of God dust in their conversation. They must therefore be blessed by God. Look at their wealth, look at their prosperity, look at their success. And none of that has anything to do with knowing God. And it's so hard for us to shake that out of our minds because we are so caught up in the cultural thinking, the mindset of the very culture that we are part of, so that as Christians we find this idea of prosperity leaking into our theology so that in some quarters it's even been enshrined as being the essence of theology. In a way, we've talked for weeks about evolution, contrast with creationism, but in a very real way, evolutionary think thinking on its very face is exactly this kind of effrontery to God. It's saying essentially that the Creator did not make me, I made myself. I mean, you can't really explain evolutionary hypothesis in any other terms. I mean, some, somehow some little protoplasm somewhere said, I think I can, I think I can, and the next thing he was a turkey. You know, it's just, and, and you know, all you had to do is mix in enough billions of years to make it a possibility. But no matter how you want to slice and dice it or explain it or, or, or kind of sophistry kind of your way through it, at the end of the day, it's always the same thing. We ended up creating ourselves. Because there's only two options. Either God created us or we are self-created. But to say that is so preposterous on its surface that nobody will ever really actually say that. And so even people like Gould from Princeton who said, well, we should, we, he postulated what we called the hopeful monster theory. He said, well, how did, how did suddenly a, a, a lizard become a, a chicken? And, he's, and he literally said this. He just, one, one day there was this lizard that says, I want to be something different. <laughs> Boop. And all of his eminent scholarly friends said, hmm, wow, deep. <laughs> but you know, God... <laughs> This wasn't new information to God. It had been going around for a long time. In fact, Isaiah made the comment. He says, you th turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall, we, shall what is formed say to him who formed it, he did not make me? Can the pot say to the potter, he knows nothing? I mean, again, we understand if I see a pot, I know somewhere there was a potter. <laughs> when I see a clock, I know somewhere there was a clockmaker. Look anywhere you want, you know that there had to be this intelligence behind it. And so we realize that when we say that man just kind of evolved himself, 
it, there's a preposterousness to it, but what we're missing is there's something even more important, more fundamental. The reason why you can't persuade a person to even logically reason that out is because they don't want the obligation of gratitude. They don't want the obligation of being thankful because if God created me, then I need to build altars and sacrifice to Him. I need to build altars and bow down before Him. And I don't mean that in the literal sense today because that was covered for us by Christ once and forever on the cross. But what evolution does denies the foundational premise of all life that we are given in Genesis 2, 7 where he said, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. So that what Noah was doing when he built this altar and he offered sacrifice was he's declaring, you are God you made us, and you made us for yourself. We exist to serve you and to follow you, not the other way around. And friends, that's often the crossroads that we find ourselves in, sometimes on a daily basis. My will be done or His will be done. <laughs> am I going to live for Him or am I going to live for myself? These are the choices that we've confronted. Sometimes we say, uh, people will come to me and say, I'm really struggling to know what God's will is. And I, I'm, I'm not a good person to ask that question, first of all, because I don't know the answer to that either. But more importantly, it's resting in the fact that He does. Just seek to honor Him and you'll find yourself being directed and guided by God to to be and to do whatever He wants you to do. You'll find yourself ending up doing exactly what He wanted. I found that I was a pastor for about 10 years before I even realized it. Never wanted to be one because I'd seen a lot of pastors and I knew I didn't want to be one of those. Most of them had a terrible wardrobe. I thought you had to be 20 years out of style to be a pastor. I, there were so many things. I, they didn't drive fun cars. They didn't even look like they were having fun. And then one day you wake up and go, dang, I am one. <laughs> you see, this is so radically different, and that's the hard part. It is so radically different to think like this than with what are the popular theologies that are spreading around the world today. You have this whole genre of the, the God within theology of people like Oprah Winfrey or Deepak Chopra or Elizabeth Gilbert. Remember her book, Eat, Pray, and Love? Which is, I don't know if you, I hope you haven't read it because it's a terrible book about how she deserts her wonderful husband and family to go find herself you know, and travels around the world eating, praying, and loving adulterously until she finally came to herself with a sudden realization that sometimes you have to destroy the things you love to find your real self. I wonder if that's what Satan said. But what they tell us is that God is an experience, not a person. That the ultimate quest is for therapy, not salvation. 
that all that matters is the pursuit of your own personal happiness, that literally, as the hippies once said, they now say again, if it feels good, do it. That the God beyond is not only beyond personality, he's also beyond morality. He's beyond morality. I love Ross Duthat in his book, um, Bad Religion, had this great face. He says, we're baptizing egomania, we're divinizing selfishness. We're, in other words, we're making our, our ego basically the sacred place to be. Loving yourself is the highest goal that you can attain to. You know that saying, if you don't love yourself, you can't love others? Let me amend that by saying, if you love yourself that much, you won't have time to love others. In fact, you'll be convinced that the purpose of their life is to love you as much as you love yourself. I never get mad at people because they don't love themselves enough. I do get mad when they don't love me enough to make sure that they never do anything I dislike or make me unhappy. How could you do that to me? We make selfishness divine. Or then you even have in the church uh, the new thought theology started by a guy by the name E.W. Kenyon and plagiarized by Kenneth Hagin and Benny Hinn and Bill Johnson and Joel Olstein and the list goes on and on. All who suggest to us that material abundance is the main sign of God's activity in the world. A theology of striving and reaching and demanding that I get what I want based upon my own concept of being God. Most people don't understand that word faith theology has as its basis the idea that because you're a child of God, you are actually a little God. And just as God could speak the world into existence by His creative power, you now as a child of God can speak reality. You confess what you want and you get it. And if you don't get it, it's because you questioned your own divinity. But you should be able to name it and claim it. And I'm sad to say that even people who are deeply entangled in that theological perspective don't even realize that that's the theological, the philosophical foundation behind the whole thing, that I am God and I can speak my reality into what I want it to be. That as I was watching a, a, a documentary on a very famous um, <clears throat> motivational speaker. And I watched how he worked the crowd and stirred them up and got them to believe in themselves and all these kind of things that suddenly struck me. This feels a lot like a lot of churches I've been in. <laughs> no, in the one contest was Tony Robbins and he's got an unbelievably profane mouth. I, I, really, I was, I was stunned by how profane he is. His favorite word starts with F, and it, it wasn't foot. But at the same time, everything he was saying is stuff that I've heard come from pulpits. And the way the crowd gets stirred up and churned up and exciting and shouting, and yeah, 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 and the music is pumping, and they're going, and, and they're dancing, and they're singing, and they're raising their hands. And I thought, 
I've been in a lot of churches that that's what's happened. Because it's all about feeling. It's all about feeling. But not about really thinking, does this make sense? And the answer to that question is, I don't care as long as it works. And essentially what we're saying is that if I can affect my material world, then that's all that matters. But even more so, we have a whole new generation of the millennials and the, and the screeners as they're being referred to more and more, <clears throat> the early teens that are coming after them. And it's interesting because the vast majority of millennials and screeners will actually tell you that they're Christians. You ask them, they're not, they're not drawn to Buddhism, they're not drawn to Hinduism like my generation was. They're drawn to Christianity. They want to be identified. If they have a religious identity, it's going to be a Christian. But when you begin to query them, their definition of what it means a Christian is really very, very different. In fact, two researchers who uh, worked on this for quite some time simply titled it moralistic therapeutic deism. I know that's a big word, but moralistic means that uh, they feel they have, they have a right to moralize to the rest of us, that they're really concerned about what they can do to therapeutically improve their situation in life. And the deist is that if there's a God, he spun the top and then he left the room, but he's not really involved anymore. But they have a modified form of deism. In fact, they have really kind of five pillars they found to their theology. And, and I say this because you need to understand that when you're talking to somebody under 30 today, this is most likely the grid through which they view the world. That first of all, that God exists, but He just wants people to be good, to be nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most of the world's religions. So we believe that God exists, but being nice is more important than being right or truthful or even being moral. In fact, there's almost a resistance to the idea of any kind of moral imposition of saying, well, what you're doing is wrong. Because the only determinant of right and wrong, of truth and falsehood, is you. Because the God within is the one who determines what is truth for you. The thirdly, the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about yourself. That fourthly, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. So that God is the celestial 911. So we have 911 prayers that, oh, God, show up now because I need you to come in and rescue me. But other than that, I don't really have to concern myself too much about Him. He doesn't care where I live or who I live with or how I live with the people that I live with. Or um, He doesn't really care about my language. Um, he doesn't really care about my thought life. He doesn't really care about what I watch on TV or I, where I go on the internet. He doesn't really care about those things. He, those things are just, not, you know, those are just, that's pretty much up to me. If I think it's good for me, that's good for me. And if I decide, hey, this isn't good for me, then that's, that's my choice, but I can't impose that on somebody else. Because in the end, 
Good people go to heaven when they die. Now, this gets a little tricky because when you say, how do you define what good is? Well, if you don't have a moral basis of right and wrong, then there is no such thing as good or bad. They just become all blended together like chocolate and milk, which I believe is neither chocolate or milk afterwards. But in stark contrast, Noah's God was not the God of contrivance. He was not the God of consumption. He was not even the God of convenience. He is the God of covenant. And covenant is different than what we think because we often associate covenant with contract as if they're basically synonyms, but they're significantly different terms. You see, a contract is, first of all, it's a promise that's made between people. And it involves a mutual exchange of of property. And if in the process or the lifetime of that contract, one or both of the parties violates the term of the contract, the contract is terminated, it's broken, and punishment is meted out as compensation for bad behavior or wrong behavior. But most importantly, it's temporary. It only matters for a period of time. If you contrast that with a covenant, a covenant is an oath, and an oath is not the same as a promise. An oath is something that you commit to God, and God commits to you. When God gives you His Word, that He's committing Himself to do what He's going to do, it's not a matter of, I promise, and I hope I don't break my promise. It means He will do what He's going to do. That it's not simply between people, but a covenant is between God and man. That's why we call marriage a covenant, because it isn't a man promising some things to a woman and a woman promising some things to a man. It's a man and a woman both standing before God and pronouncing an oath of commitment to God first, that I will love her as Christ loves His church, and I will respect Him as the church respects Christ. That's my covenant oath with you, God. And it is God that is the central feature that holds all that together. Because if you see marriage as only being a contractual relationship, <clears throat> let me tell you what, how, how many days will it take before one or the other will no longer produce the goods and services that are required under the terms of the contract? In fact, most people find that after they got married, there were terms, there was fine print in that contract that they never even saw or heard or read. Well, if you loved me, you wouldn't. Really? I, that's the first time I've heard that. <laughs> The thirdly, as exchange, as, rather than being about property, it's about relationship. In fact, one theologian put it really well, he calls it an extended kinship. In other words, when you enter into a covenant with somebody, you have entered into their familial relationship. You are part of the family now. So that's why in the Middle East, when you sit down at a, at a person's table and you eat with them, you enter into what they call a covenant of salt. In other words, you salt your meal together and you eat it together, and now what you eat has gone into me and what I eat has gone into you, and we become one together, and I'm committed to protect you as long as you are under my roof and to meet any need or request that you give to me because you are part of my life right now because we have eaten together and shared in a covenant of salt. That a covenant has consequences, not punishments. It has consequences. There are blessings 
and there are curses. And it's not so much that God blesses on the one hand and curses you on the other, but it's more like God saying, you know, <coughs> if you go to the left, you'll experience bad things. If you go to the right, you'll experience a blessing. My blessing will always be found here. And my blessing, the door of blessing, will always be open and available to you if you choose that door. But if you choose to go this way, then you'll find that what will pursue you are curses. And the longer you pursue it, the more those consequences will basically come upon your life. But lastly, and what really makes it distinct, is a covenant is everlasting. A contract is a temporary agreement. A covenant is forever. That's why God said, I'll put my sign of the rainbow in the sky as an everlasting covenant. There are seven different covenants in the Bible. Some argue eight, but we'll, I'll tell you why later on when we get to that point. <clears throat> the first was the Edenic covenant where God made in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Don't eat of that fruit, things will be good. It was, a, it was a conditional covenant, if you will, that God says, if you, don't, if you do eat of the fruit, you will die. Then He made a covenant with Adam, and He said, I'm going to bring a Redeemer into your life who's going to rescue you from the curse that you brought into your life because you violated the first covenant. Then comes what we're looking at now called the Noahic covenant, the covenant that God makes with Noah, which is still in force in the world today. We'll look later on about the covenant that God makes with Abraham, then we'll talk about the covenant He made with Moses, the covenant He made with David, and then the new covenant that we have in Christ. But what you need to understand about covenants, covenants are about God's relationship with mankind. It's God defining in more particular ways how He is going to move and work and manifest Himself in our life as His people. We've looked, as I said, at the first two, the Edenic and the Damic. Now we need to look at the last of all, the Noahic Covenant. The Noahic Covenant is, is, is fairly simple. It starts off with, these, with the condition that we would simply say it is a unilateral covenant. It's all God, none of Noah. You notice that God says, here's the covenant I'm making with you, and He just informed Noah of what the future is going to hold. This is what I'm going to do for you, Noah. And it's a very practical covenant, but it's followed with this commitment when He says, Never again will I destroy all living creatures. I will never flood the earth with water ever again. So, uh, you know, I'm not worried about global warming or climate change, the tides rising or all those sort of things. None of those things are going to destroy humanity. Uh, what's going to destroy humanity is the, the Lord is going to pulverize the entire atomic structure of the universe and the heavens will melt. It's all going to be destroyed, which is an important thing to always keep in the back of your mind when you're worrying about, you know, losing something or something dying and breaking down, and you say, I can't afford to replace it. Well, it's all going to burn in the end anyway, right? And I don't mean to be cavalier or insensitive to that, but God's promise was, I'm never going to destroy mankind in this way. The thirdly, there were certain stipulations, which really, those stipulations that we believe, many theologians say, are the basis of what we would call government, the fact that men are to be governed. But he says that everything that lives and moves will be food for you. But keep in mind, when they got off the ark, you know, you wonder, why did he have seven clean animals? Well, in a point, God was trying to say, you know, you'd be better off if you eat the clean ones. You got more of them. So, and keep in mind, when they got off the ark, there was no vegetation. 
And it was going to be a long time before they could plant and harvest and begin to provide food from the, from the fields and the trees. So God says, I give you extra ones so that when you get hungry, you're not going to eat the one tortoise that you have uh, because then you'll never have any more tortoises. No, eat the sheep. <laughs> you got seven of them. One you can offer as a sacrifice to me, the rest you can eat. But then he thirdly says, you must not eat anything with blood in it. And I'm here to tell you, blood sausage shouldn't be on your menu. Even though I eat it and ask for forgiveness afterwards. <laughs> I remember in England getting their blood pudding, this black kind of bread thing, and I said, what's this made out of? Ox blood. <laughs> <laughs> so disgusting. Tastes really good, though. Uh, <laughs> but most importantly, he said, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. It's a statement of capital punishment. I know that's been a debate in a lot of places in the world where there should be no capital punishment. Um, and I think when man tries to reason it out himself, he said, well, you know, uh, who am I to, to judge somebody for doing something else? But it's not you judging. It's, it's God in His Word saying that when somebody takes the life of somebody else in a wrongful way, they need to shed their own blood. They need to give their life in payment for the life that they took. In the end, it always is the best preventative against that kind of behavior. But last of all, He says, I guarantee these things to you because I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant. So that from that point on, and there's a big debate about were there rainbows before the flood? And some people say yes, and some people say no. Um, I'm still waiting for my film to develop from the creation so I, so I can tell you for sure which one it is. I, I mean, I don't, you know, that's, I'm not qualified to make that comment. But I would just simply say this, that every time you look at the rainbow to recognize that God's saying, this is my covenant to you, that I will never destroy the get worth again by, by flood although there have been a few times in my life where I began to question whether that was true or not because the water was coming so fast. But in the end, God enters into this new phase of relationship. It's really a new beginning, and that's what often covenants come down to. They usually mark a point of a, a new franchise of God's relationship with mankind. He's going to be interacting with man on a different basis than he had previously, and that's what we'll see as the progressively the covenants grow to manifest God's plan for humanity up until the coming of Christ. Let's pray. Father God, I ask that you would help us to uh, see things that maybe we haven't really looked at or thought about before. You know that my heart's desire is that when we read the Bible, that suddenly we'll read them with a different set of eyes, that there will be an awareness of things that we had never noticed before. And that, Lord, they would bring us to a place of awe and wonderment about your word. That we would marvel at, at not just its majesty, Lord, but its mystery. How did the God of the universe speak through a man to write these words? The thousands of years later would be more relevant to us today than we had ever imagined. I pray, God, that you'd fill us with that, that wonder. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you all stand?